You are listening to the Bay City Church sermon series, God the Fairy Tale, a series designed to answer questions about Jesus, religion, and the Bible. For more video and audio resources, visit baycity.church. No matter what you think about Jesus, no matter what you, where you land on him, no matter what you, wherever you find yourself with this guy, there is no debating that he is the most important, most talked about, most influential man in human history. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how Time Magazine has rated him the number one most influential person of all time. Go figure, you know, three billion followers, um, you know, 2,000 years of history. Even if you disagree with Christianity, there's no debating that Jesus is <clears throat> influential. More books have been written about Jesus than any other book ever. His book, the Bible, is the most published book in human history, right? We've talked about this. 20,000 20, times published more. Sorry. 20, 000, he was published, the Bible's published 20-some thousand times more than the next closest book, okay? Homer's Iliad. The first ever motion picture was a movie about Jesus. Did you know that? Jesus' passion, okay? It was a, a, a movie about Jesus. It was, a, it was created as an evangelistic tool to get people to hear about Jesus, so Jesus has been at the forefront, right? The, the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press, was invented to publish the Bible. Jesus is an incredibly influential person. Our calendars are based off of his life, death, and resurrection. We get a weekend because of him, right? The, the Jews worship Jesus on Sabbath, on the Saturday, and, and the resurrection day was Sunday. America was invented. Didn't know which day to get off. You get both. Congratulations, okay? Christian or not, you can say amen to that. You have two days off, Okay? Jesus is an impactful person, but the most impactful part of everything of Jesus' character was <clears throat> his resurrection. His resurrection is the most important thing. Jesus Christ on the cross dies a death, murdered a death on the cross, deserted by all of his friends, except for a couple, and goes from dying alone on the cross and buried in a tomb to then he multiplies himself to, to what we have today, three-some billion Christians. Now, how did that happen? Even when Jesus was alive, he went from just a humble Galilean guy walking around, homeless, to 12 followers, to multiple followers, to thousands of followers, to now millions and billions of followers on the world. How did this happen? Now, many other religions have began their faiths with really influential people. There's no doubt about it. But Jesus is unique. Most people categorize Jesus with most other religions, and I get it. Religions are religions to people that don't know a lot about him. I understand that. But Christianity, and Jesus in particular, his story is incredibly unique, very unique. Let's just start with the fact of where are all of the founders of the religions? Of, where are they? Where, where's Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith and the Old Testament and uh, uh, what, what Christians believe? Where, where is Abraham? Well, he's buried. Abraham has been, Abraham's buried. He's gone. And there's, a, there's a, a memorial site where you can visit today where it's believed that Abraham is buried. You can go see it. What about Muhammad, the prophet of the Muslim faith? Where is he? Well, he's buried in the Green Dome. It's memorialized in the Green Dome in Saudi Arabia. You can go see his tomb. Even American-made religions like Joseph Smith and Mormonism. Where is he buried? Well, he's buried at the Joseph Family Cemetery in Nauvoo, Illinois. You can go see it. You can go see it today. In the 1800s, Joseph Smith died and he was buried there. Even the Buddha that began the Brutus movement, he was cremated and memorialized in Kashinagar, India. He's gone. And then Jesus' grave. Jesus' grave is, we don't have, have Jesus' grave. 
We don't know where he's buried. Nobody has any idea where the most important man in human history is buried. No clue. Now, you can say his body was stolen. You can say all these different things. We're going to address those things. But regardless of where you fall on Jesus, he is the most talked about, most studied, most investigated human on earth. Regardless of if you believe he's God, and yet we don't know where this man is buried. No clue. No clue. Now, as we try to figure out where this guy Jesus is buried, we're going to investigate a text in Luke here. And this is the biblical story. And now there's a few different in the other Gospels, but this is the biblical story in the book of Luke. So I invite you, obviously, to turn there if you're, if you're in Luke 24 or open your app and go there. We're going to be there, and the scriptures will be here on the screen as well. But we're going to see the biblical account of just exactly how this happened. And as we explore it, I'm going to explain and show you two different types of things taking place. There is certainly brutal, honest, cold, hard facts about what's taking place here. And there are ramifications that are physical and mental, right? We, in, in the Western world, which we are, we, we like those kind of things. We like physical, we like mental. But there's also spiritual things taking place here as well. You see, Jesus rising from the dead in Christians, from a Christian's perspective is a historical fact. It is a historical fact in Christianity. That's what Christians believe. But there's a spiritual ramification for all of us here as well. In fact, um, I believe this is the most important question anybody could ever answer in their entire life. Now, the second most is like, who are you going to marry? Okay, well, I get that. Like, but the first one is, who is your God? And if you answer this question right, if you answer this question in a way that is life-giving, you might find out that this is the most important question you'll ever answer in your entire life, okay? So, here's the first thing we need to know. If the resurrection is real, it changes everything. If the resurrection happened, it changes everything. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, everything about your life as you know it will be impacted and changed. Everything. There is not a thing in your life that is not impacted by this truth. If a dude in the, in the first century Judaism in, in the Middle East conquers death and rises and defeats it, that's telling us something that's a sign and we must investigate it. This changes everything. So let's go to verse one in our text. But on the first day of the week, early at dawn, the first day of the week is Sunday for that culture, resurrection day, remember? There we go. The first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb and they taking spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. That's crazy. But when they went, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, this is a statement here that is not just a physical one. It is a physical statement, but it's also a very spiritual statement. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And I guess we can just ask the same question here this morning. Why do we seek the living among the dead? Now, the Christian perspective is that Jesus Christ rose from death. He is, the, he is God of the universe. That's a Christian perspective. And even for us in here that maybe call themselves Christians, you know, you would think if you believe something that crazy, your lives would look a little different, you know? Don't you think our lives would be a little bit more, I don't know, joyful, potent, impactful, influential, if we actually believe this? We go looking 
in the wrong places for the power that's going to change our lives. And we go seeking things that are physical, that are real, people, money, respect, time, honor. We go looking for life-giving things in things that have no power to help us. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. We go into our places of work. We hope that this work will give us joy. It will bring us life. It will bring us peace. It will, do, it will be everything we want for us. It will lead to the money that is going to finally get us off our hide. It's finally going to be the place. This is going to be the place I work. That's finally going to change it. This is going to do it. This is what it's going to be. Finally, when I move into that house, finally, when I make the update, this is going to be it. We do this all the time. Are those things bad? Of course not. Those are great things. But when you go seeking for the ultimate in them, then you got a problem. And so we get, to the, we get to the bottom of it. We find that we were working in this job for so long and we actually realize, man, I thought this was gonna be more for me than it is. Happens all the time. We seek pleasure and happiness and glory amongst the things in the world. But here's the problem, guys. The world, it's broken. It's imperfect. Is anyone in here perfect? There's no perfect thing in this world, okay? Everything is broken. Why? Because there's people here. Have you met any people? They're not so great, okay? <laughs> We're people. <laughs> people mess up, okay? And people cause problems, right? I've had many friends tell me, man, I would come to church if it wasn't for people. Yeah, I get it. I understand. The people, people mess things up. People mess things up in your company, in your school, at your job, in your family, causes division, and yet we go to those things as the ultimate things are gonna provide for us the things that we need to make us finally joyous and peaceful and happy. And what do we find? doesn't work. We seek the living among the dead. Seeking hope in media and political and social and cultural ideologies and in movies, man, that's where we're looking. Now, are all those things bad? Should we find hope in those things? Yeah, perhaps, absolutely. It's part of how we're created. We're actually designed to look for objects of hope. But the ultimate object of hope can give you an inner ballast that will keep you stable in the midst of suffering, in the midst of of joy this power here when we seek the living amongst the dead we're, we're, what we're actually seeking for is joy and peace apart from circumstances that's what we're looking for and we get there and we go well if i have the job then whatever else happens will be good it doesn't happen but here's the thing when we seek the living amongst the living if we go to jesus if we go to an actual living breathing source of life and we go to this life we can find joy and peace apart from circumstance so, things could be going poorly in your life and you could still experience joy. When's the last time you experienced joy in the midst of hardship? When's the last time something horrible has happened to you and you felt joyous? Not happy, not turning a blind eye to what happened to you, definitely grieving, definitely sorrowful, but still knowing that deep down there is a joy knowing that this life isn't all there is. When's the last time you experienced that? That's what happens when we seek the living amongst the dead is we do not receive that. We need to go to the resurrection of Jesus for this. So in the resurrection of Jesus, there is no need to give life meaning like we do a job because the resurrection of Jesus actually gives us meaning. There's a difference there. The hope that we attach to people and things, the hope, the hope we're looking for is actually found in this passage right here, this empty tomb. This empty tomb. Now, this, these two figures in this text say to the people that are coming to the grave, they're saying, what you're looking for is actually, the person here, he's not here anymore. He's gone. All that you expect here at this grave will not be here. That's really interesting. Now, for a little visual, I wanted to you know, give you this little visual. 
there's a, I don't know if many of you have heard of the garden tomb. So this may or may not be where Jesus was buried, but many scholars believe that this is the tomb where Jesus' body laid. That's what many people believe. And so you can go visit it and see it. And I think actually on the door uh, of, of this, there's a part of this scripture that is on the door. Um, and it's right there. And so this is actually really, really cool visual. So many times people will say, uh, Jesus isn't even real. There's not even any evidence for Jesus. We don't even know if he existed. Well, that's actually not true. We actually know Jesus existed. We know he lived, and I'm going to get to some of that evidence in a second. But just to visualize it for you a second, this is po- it's possible that there was a giant boulder in front of this door some 2,000 years ago. And when, when the lady, Mary Magdalene and the ladies walk up to this tomb, it's possible that that stone was rolled away, and there were two people standing there in dazzling white saying, he's not here. Now, wouldn't that be crazy? Like, I literally just buried, I mean, like, let's just talk about how nuts that is, like, for a second. I mean, really? He's gone? Like, did he get up? Like, what happened? He's gone. So this is a really interesting visual here, just to see, man, Jesus actually was a place Jesus was actually buried in a place. Now, this is in Jerusalem outside of the city walls, and this is adjacent to a place called Golgotha. You don't have to remember that giant word, but it's the place where Jesus was crucified, okay? There's a big hill. Jesus was crucified. This is right nearby. Now, the place where Jesus is crucified is a bus station, okay? Yeah, so if you get on the bus there, that's where Jesus was killed. Pretty crazy, right? But now, and, but the tomb is preserved. Pretty powerful stuff. Now, it was speculated, but let's continue our, let's continue our, our text. So let's, let's go to verse 6. Verse 6. This is what they say to the people that come to the temple, or, or sorry, to the tomb to see Jesus. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you? So the, actually, these guys are about to remember, remind them that he told them that he was going to do this. Which, by the way, if someone tells me they're going to rise from the dead, I'm not, I'm not believing them. Like, I'm just not. Like, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're... I'm, I'm probably going, this guy's crazy, okay? But he thinks he's rising from the dead. He said, remember he told you he was, while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. Oh, like, oh yeah. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11, that's the 11 remaining disciples outside of Judas who killed himself, Okay. And to all the rest, those were other followers of Jesus. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Let's just pause right there, because we are going to get into, remember, the Western society, the cold, hard, brutal facts of this. But let's pause here for a second and think about the spiritual. This last line here. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now, it's easy for us to look back 2,000 years later and go, he told you how many times he was going to rise from the dead? Like, constantly. Constantly said, hey, I'm going to die. You know that. In three days, I'll rise. I'm just letting you know. Oh, yeah, okay, Jesus, you're so hilarious. Like, that's what they're thinking. Pass the bread. Like, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Jesus is a little off his rocker, okay? That's what they're thinking, but he's he told them multiple times, and then there's several witnesses that go to the tomb, see the stone rolled away, and they go back to the 11 disciples and the rest of the followers of Jesus, and they say, yo, he's gone. What he said is true. He is literally not there. And they're like, no, that's just an idle tale. They did not believe. Now, this, comes, this brings to me to something I've always called the Saturday state of mind. 
Okay, we have Friday. So today is Saturday. We got a good state of mind. But think about the mindset of the followers of Jesus on the Saturday, the day after Jesus was crucified. He was crucified on Friday. Saturday, they're sitting there waiting around, and then remember Sunday, he resurrects. Now, what do you think they were doing on Saturday? Do you think they were having a party where they think they were at, like, Mission Dolores Park having a picnic? No. They were probably really upset. What were they probably feeling? Defeated? Maybe second-guessing themselves? Feeling doubt? Anger? Stress, depression, anxiety. Can you imagine how they felt? Stressed out. And yet they get the truth that Jesus is not dead, that he has risen. And they go, no, it's probably not even real. Now this would be so silly of us. And we can say, man, looking back on that, I cannot believe they did that. If we didn't all do this ourselves today. 2,000 years of history, we see that Jesus did this from the Christian perspective. And yet we still feel defeated, still feel second-guessing, still feel like we're angry with God, still doubt God, still feel depressed, still feel like he's not working, still feel like he's not real, still feel like he hasn't risen in our lives. Maybe we cognitively believe that Jesus has rose, but we don't effectively feel it, and we definitely don't live like it. And many of us are walking around with Saturday states of mind constantly, depressed, sorrowful, as if our God has not risen. And we mope around our lives and we feel the pain. And guess what happens? Because hard things happen in life, right? People get sick. Some people die. There's stress. There's job loss. There's stress at work. There's relational conflicts. And all of these things hit us. And we, we, we just absorb them, and we bury them, and we like, try to conceal them, and then we like, let them out in the form of like, bizarre behaviors and addictions and like, ostracism and, and, rec- and become re- becoming a recluse. All these different weird ways we do it. But don't you see, if Jesus Christ rose from the grave, there's an actual power to heal your issues. There's an actual power to heal your issues. No, not like intellectually, like a literal emanating force of God that can change your heart that can really happen and yet we live with these giant shields up these cocoons and we just protect ourselves from the power because if we got too excited that God might heal us I mean what how stupid would we look if it wasn't true and Peter didn't want to go he is risen he wanted to go no that's probably not true set the bar low we don't want I wouldn't really want to live like too much as if God had, I believe God I mean <sighs> I mean, I'd like to be pleasantly surprised, but I don't really want to think too much. Here's the problem with shutting off your negative emotions. You also have to shut off your positive ones. You think, no, I shut off my emotions. I'm just a happy person. You could be way more happy if you didn't also shut off the bitter and anger from the relationship with your father. You can, you can be a much better, much more joyous person if you didn't also shut off the emotions from the conflict at work. But when you go bitter... Bitterness is like a spiritual novocaine. It's like an injection into your soul that numbs it. But it can't just numb the negative. It has to numb the positive. Jesus doesn't want you to, be, doesn't want you to experience numbness. He's not giving numbness. And he's definitely not giving some sort of, like, just forget about it. It's all good. No, he's talking about real power to actually deal with your problems, to grieve and to suffer, but to experience joy at the same time, knowing that God can heal us. This is the Saturday state of mind. Jesus, by the way, and I'll read a couple verses, did tell them multiple times that he was going to rise. 
And he's told us multiple times he did rise. But look at this, Matthew 17, uh, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man, that's me, Jesus, okay, is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. He's talking in third person, so maybe it confused him. I have no idea. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So they remember, like, you're gonna die. They felt that emotion, remember? And then this one's not up there, but Luke 9:22. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. He told them, end quote, <laughs> okay? And then this one's on the board as well, Luke 8, chapter 18. After taking the 12 disciples, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets, that's, the, that's their, part of their Old Testament, remember, that's their book, the Hebrew Scriptures, will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. That's pretty specific. Spit? Like he knew that? I mean, okay, he's being, and after flogging him, they will kill him. Flogging is like beating, right? There's a, a whip, basically. And on the third day, he will rise. He's saying, okay, but I'm going to rise. And so maybe they heard the negative part and didn't hear the positive. Like, do you know what I'm saying? It, how, how, many, how many negative comments does it take for you to just ruin your day about you? One. Right? You can have a hundred positive comments. Like, man, you're looking great today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I've been losing weight. Man, man, that was a great, that was a great uh, talk you gave at the, at, at the meeting. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, honey, you're looking so good. Your husband's telling you, man, man, wow, all that's great. He's like, oh, wow, uh, are you feeling okay? You don't look so well. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I am sick. I mean, Stacy was sick last week. I mean, maybe she got me sick. She did it again. And you start to second guess yourself. You know what I'm saying? The disciples heard all of the... Jesus has been telling them the whole time, I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise. All they heard was, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. That's all they heard. But we do the same thing. We can understand, okay? We get it. So he says, the prophets, uh, everything the prophets have said is going to come true, and that's about me. And then this isn't on the board either, but Isaiah 53, written some 400 plus years prior. He was oppressed and afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He's talking about Jesus right here. Jesus is going to be the sacrificial lamb that is slaughtered on behalf of the sinners of people. And he's like reminding them, guys, you've been studying this your entire life, and you still forget? Are you kidding me? Crazy. What's crazy about uh, Luke 24 is at the end, Jesus then appears to them so after he rises he kind of leaves it hanging a little bit and then he shows back up to the disciples and goes told you right pretty cool uh luke 24 verse 36 look at listen to this this is crazy jesus himself stood among them so he just showed up stood among them and said peace to you greetings like that's a, a formal greeting and they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit so they still, they, they're looking at Jesus, and they're like, what? Who? No. And then he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do your doubts arise in your hearts? You see my hands and my feet? That is it, that it is I. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So one, Jesus knows what they're thinking. That's pretty cool, because he's God. But the next thing is, like, he's like, actually look at my body and in other texts he actually says look at the scars on my body you can actually see where i was crucified and they're healed but for us in the spiritual sense again sometimes god stands right before us and we miss him sometimes god has been knocking on our door consistently and constantly our entire lives just tapping nice and gently like 
peace to you. Peace to you. I'm, I, it's me. It's Jesus. I want, I want change for your life. The thing you're struggling with, I, I think you can actually, my power is sufficient for that. You know, the things you've been going to instead of me, those things are going to cause you pain, and I'll cause you joy. And he's knocking on them. Peace to you. We're standing right in Jesus' midst, and we miss him just like the disciples. And then we get all confused, and we go, no, maybe it was, I thought I felt Jesus. I thought that was a thing, but maybe just a coincidence or you know, chalk it up to chance, or that couldn't have been really God, or, you know, or maybe we're just overthinking Jesus. Maybe we're like, I just don't know what God's will is for my life, and I just don't know who he is. I don't get it. But maybe, like the disciples, Jesus has been telling us all along, and now he's here present with us today, and he's trying to tell you again, hey, hey, I have changed for you. I'm in your midst. Perhaps today God will stand before you and in your midst, and I pray for all of us here that we do not miss him, okay? Okay, next thing. What evidence is there that he resurrected? What evidence is there he resurrected? So we, we got this spiritual side. What about the cold, hard facts? Because some of us, man, we just have analytical brains. I need to know, like, what happened, okay? Well, I'm going to give you some of it. There's way more that I can say here. But I will, I will say this just to start. There are a few things that all scholars can agree on about Jesus, okay? So you could take the most hippy-dippy liberal scholars. You could take the most Bible-thumping, uh, you know, tie, real tight, red-faced, old-school conservative people, and we can all mesh them together with just a few facts that everyone believes about Jesus. Whether they, whether they are a Christian or not, this is what most people, most modern scholars will say, um, just, just kind of to create like a, a little bit of an even playing field here. First thing is that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. There's literally no doubt in history, in ancient history, that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. None. We know for a fact that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. There are too many non-Christian statistical sources and too many Christian ones that both agree with that. That Jesus was buried, most likely in a private tomb. We know that, okay? Soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent. So basically, they were grieved after Jesus died. We know that, and all scholars agree. Jesus' tomb was found empty. We know that's true. Okay? didn't say we know that Jesus rose from the dead. It says that we know Jesus' tomb was found empty. The disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Many non-Christian sources will say that all of a sudden there was just this, this crazy mob mentality that was taking place where people believed something happened spiritually. Okay? The proclamation of the resurrection took place. People proclaimed that there was a resurrection. Some scholars will say, well, the idea of a resurrection came some 500 years later through yada, yada, yada. That's not true. We know from non-Christian sources that they believed Jesus rose from the dead, even if the non-Christian source was literally throwing it under the bus as a fable, ta as a fable or a tale. Okay? Um, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem. So they, they preached not in some faraway land where, where no one knew. They were preaching where it happened. So Imagine three days after Jesus was died, you would come into the temple courts and say, he rose. People would go, no, I saw him die. So it's not as if they went to a, a foreign land and were just preaching. People were like, well, who's this Jesus guy? Everybody knew who Jesus was during, at this time. Um, Sunday was the primary day for the gathering and worshiping. They, the Christians, oh, the, the Messianic Jews that started to believe in Jesus, they changed the day they worshiped because of the resurrection. Okay. And then, just a few, years later, a, a few years later, a guy named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who was a known Christian persecutor, uh, became a Christian believer due to an experience he believed was some sort of spiritual experience. 
Now, all all, most modern scholars agree with these facts. Now, that doesn't say that Jesus rose from the dead. That didn't say Jesus is God. But that's a really interesting starting place, okay? So let me give you some biblical evidence. First thing we know from the Bible is that the tomb was empty. We just read about that. The tomb was, the tomb was empty. So uh, it, many people will say he went to the wrong tomb. We actually know from history that they went to the tomb where Jesus was buried. If they went to the wrong tomb, the Jews would go get Jesus' body and parade it around town. We would know that they were just mistaken, sadly mistaken, okay? We know that there uh, were Roman guards standing in front of the tomb from, from the gospel accounts. And in this day, Roman guards were not allowed to fail. This was not like a, we don't have plausible deniability in this day. If they were to guard Jesus and he were to be dead or he were to be taken somehow, they could be executed for failing, for failing their duties. And so we know that as well. There's something also called the swoon theory, which is that Jesus was wrapped so tightly in linen that he, he actually didn't die, but he was, body was being preserved by the linen and uh, he actually wasn't dead. So he got up and like left, uh, which some of you got back pain, and you're like, I can't even get out of bed. <laughs> so getting crucified for nine hours and flogged and beaten and then having a spear through your side, I'm probably not getting up the next day. You know what I mean? Um, not even after three days, okay? Um, another evidence against this is that a lot of scholars will say that the linen Jesus was wrapped in in those days was roughly 100 pounds of linen cloth. And so he was wrapped several times with this cloth. Getting out of this cloth would have been almost impossible for a human being and probably would have suffocated if that were true, okay? Um, and then also Jesus had a, a spear shoved un, into his rib cage, uh, which uh, scholars believe punctured something called a heart sack, which caused more bleeding in, in, his, in his death. So probably not, pro- so we know the tomb is empty. Then we know that Jesus appeared physically alive. We know that he was physically alive, at least from a Christian perspective. Like I said, this is biblical evidence. Now, Jehovah's Witness is a religion, a spinoff of, uh, of a Christianity started in America, and it is not aligned with Christianity for many reasons, but one of the doctrines they're fundamentally opposed to is um, the fact that Jesus experienced a physical resurrection. So they would actually disagree with this, but then we look at even verse 40 here in our passage, and it says, and when he said this, he showed him his hands and feet. Jesus was alive. He was showing them the scars that he had on his body, Okay. And then we know from the Bible that Jesus appeared to over 500 people outside after the disciples and his other followers. And so 500 people. Now, this is not in a day where we've got like mega churches where there's like 20,000 seats. Like there's no Chase Center back then, okay? So he couldn't walk in and, you know, there wasn't jumbotrons and Jesus like, it's me, I'm alive, right? 500 was pretty big crowd back then, especially when you had nothing but word of mouth. There was no Instagram. There was no Twitter. There was no live streaming to get Jesus' name out there, okay? That didn't happen. So let's put him in his context. It's always important to remember as we study the, the message of Jesus to put him back where he was, place him in his context, to compare him to the ancient Middle East, not modern Western society in 2019. So we know that 500 people is a tremendous amount of people to appear in front of back in that day. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses, verse 3, this is the Apostle Paul talking. He says this, For I deliver, you, deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul here is saying, he's writing to the church at Corinth, telling them, Jesus died according to what the Old Testament said, that he was buried, 
and that, on the, that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 others at one time. And then he says this, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. What is he saying there? He's saying most of the people that saw Jesus walking are still, go, are still here. So if you want to go talk to him, go ask him. Yeah, some of them have died. Most of them are still alive. Like, go ask him about it. Right? That's what we're talking about here. So we're, we're saying, Paul here is saying, there are people walking the earth that literally saw Jesus. Now, there's one theory that would say that there was a mass hallucination that took place. Like, I mean, there, this is reaching. That somehow they all got on one drug, uh, DMT or something. They're all listening to Joe Rogan, and they all got on DMT, and they all hallucinated and saw Christ. Um, I mean, that's a stretch, but that's one explanation for that. The Bible says otherwise. What about circumstantial evidence? Other evidences. The disciples radically changed their minds about Jesus after the resurrection. Remember, all of the disciples left him. They weren't hanging out with him anymore. They were gone, okay? Like, they didn't want any, they, they just, like, uh, Peter was out. He was not there. Actually, only one disciple was at the foot of the cross. All the others were nowhere to be found, afraid and scared, all gone. But then something happens. A few days later, they all change their tune. They all start appearing in public. They all start getting arrested for the cause of Jesus. They all get, um, eventually get murdered for Jesus, now, that's a quite a change. That's circumstantial evidence, but it's quite a change. How does Peter go from literally denying Jesus in public three times, saying he doesn't even know who he is, to being crucified upside down for him after his death? Now, I like elaborate jokes just as much as the next guy, but I am not getting crucified upside down for something I made up, okay? That is just not happening, okay? If I'm making a joke, it's going to end with everyone laughing, ha-ha, Eddie's so funny, or... I'm rich, something. But it's not me getting crucified upside down, okay? That's just not how it's going down. So Peter, there's something that took place here. Uh, the apostle John was boiled alive and didn't, he didn't die either. He was boiled alive and didn't die. Uh, James was beheaded. These disciples suffered crazy deaths. Next piece of circumstantial evidence, Jesus appears to women first. He appears to women first. Now you think, well, let's, that gives it more credence. <laughs> yeah, today, absolutely. But in that day, it's the exact, if you were going to cook up a story, you would not cook up a story with women being your primary witness, calling, being called to the stand. Um, telling this story in the first century, instantly, this leads to credibility problems. If they're making this story up, it makes sense to find the most noble, the most generous and devout Jew among them to be the witness. And he would have to be male. Because the testimony of a woman, particularly some of the women like Mary Magdalene with their past, would not be received in that day. And then the growth of the early church. We talked about this already, but the church grows from almost zero people to some three billion people alive today who claim to worship Jesus. That's just a ton of people. How did this happen? Okay. Now, what other evidence do we have? Some non-Christian evidence. So... Non-Christian and Jewish historians admit Jesus performed miracles and possibly resurrected. So you're going to find in history, a lot of people aren't going to just say Jesus resurrected because that means they would believe in Jesus. But there are people that uh, accounted for it and said something. Some people think he might have resurrected. I don't know. That happened a lot. There are more non-Christian sources for the existence of the resurrection of Jesus than there are for the Roman Empire. If you count, there is actually 10 sources for Jesus and nine for the Roman Empire. If you were to count the Christian sources, it'd be 43 to nine, or 43 to 10, because the, the Bible would count as one of these. 
That is an insane amount. And then we've talked about the different records of histor- uh, historians that kept record. By the way, this is, how, this is how they kept record back then. They wrote stuff down and they passed it on orally. They didn't have YouTube, okay? They, did, <laughs> they didn't film stuff. It would be nice, uh, but they didn't. They wrote stuff down. And so uh, we, many of you heard, have heard this quote by Josephus, and I've quoted it before. You can put it up. And I will say this. Um, in this quote, in this quote, there, there have been some changes made to this quote over the course of history that made this to be more credible for the resurrection than it was. So some people were changing this to make it seem like, like Josephus was like believing the resurrection. That's just not true. And so what I did, and so what you can do in history is go back and find other people quoting Josephus that are non-believers as well and find the actual original quote. And so we found the actual original quote here, which many of you may have heard. So this is a Jewish historian talking about Jesus. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those that had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that they had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So he's saying the disciples said he rose. The disciples think he's the Messiah. So something happened. Something happened. He's not proving it, but something happened here. I can't give you the list of all. There are so many. Um, and if you're interested in these, come find me after. I will definitely tell you where you can look at more of these resources. But there is one more. Suetonius was a Roman historian and an analyst um, for Rome. In, in his biography of Nero, he mentions the persecution of Christianity and mentions that Christians believe that, that, uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so people, and this was written in 54 AD, just about two decades after Jesus. So we know that something happened, okay? And then... And then lastly, there's a Jewish explanation of the resurrection. If you listen to a modern Jewish scholar, obviously they don't believe in Jesus. What's their explanation? Uh, well, that Christians were zealots and that they were anarchists and that they, and that they somehow uh, caused a lot of dysfunction and maybe perhaps stole the body or something like that. An earliest attempt to provide an alternative explanation to Jesus did not deny the tomb was empty. Nobody said, yo, it's, it's still there. The body's there. Nobody said that. They all said, it's empty, let's think of a solution. Okay, so whether or not the solutions are true, that's for all of us to figure out. But they did not deny that the tomb was empty. And you could even read that, one of those accounts in the Bible, Matthew 28, verse 11. It says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, that Jesus rose. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to our governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took his money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews today. And it is one of the many stories that circulate about Jesus' resurrection. Okay, a lot of information, I get it. But I think all of it's super valuable. Last thing we need to know, what are the ramifications? If like if this, did, if this deal did go down, what are the ramifications? Now, many people say in modern, like I think maybe traditional Christians will say, Jesus died. What happens is if you believe in him, you go to heaven. If you don't, you go to hell. Uh, I mean, that's part of it, but that's, you're missing a lot. 
you're missing a ton of the ramifications of the resurrection. There's actually much more taking place with the resurrection than just like a simple decision up, up in the elevator or down in the elevator. It's just, it's, it's more complicated than that. But here's one scholar. This is what he says, N.T. Wright. The resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom has really launched on earth as it is in heaven. The resurrection doesn't just give you a decision to make, although there is a decision. It brings something down from heaven to earth. You see, the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God, and we have inherited the sin that they ultimately received through their rebellion. And just like a captain, uh, if, a, if, if a captain calls heads uh, on a football field or a, you know, on a basketball court or whatever, and for, to who gets the ball first, just like the captain, he makes the decision, the whole team is implicated in that decision. You can't say, no, 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 I call tails. No, he, he's heads, I'm tails. Like, it doesn't work like that. We're all humans, we all are implicated, right? We all are a part of this coin toss. So we all have sin, and we all have sin, and it, this sin separates us from God. God is such a holy God. Our sin does not allow us to fellowship, and so God's like, I don't want this. I am just, I am righteous, so I'm gonna make a way for you. I'm gonna make a way for you to be in my presence so we can enjoy one another. But I need you to be holy and set apart like I originally created you. And so the way he does this is he sends his son Jesus into the world. And Jesus comes into the world, lives a perfect life, dies, because humans killed him, but God shows up, we murder him, like shows where humans are at. And then he defeats death and resurrects. And what's happening here is Jesus steps foot on the earth and the very first moment we have a, an instrument of the kingdom of God standing on a broken world. We have the piercing of heaven meeting earth right here taking place. This is new. The whole, the whole gospels, Jesus is going, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is he saying? That means literally heaven and earth are going to meet and I'm gonna redeem and restore the world. This is the very first instance of it taking place. Now, what can we learn from Jesus in this? Verse 41, this is really cool of our text. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. <laughs> I mean, crucifixion's hard work, you know what I mean? Yeah, you guys, uh, I didn't eat for three days and I was also in jail before that, I'm hungry. And so he eats and he eats a piece of broiled fish, which sounds pretty good. And, but, but wait a second, like, I thought he was God. Why is this guy eating? The first thing he does is eat. Jesus's body is a clue. Jesus's resurrected body is a clue. He's demonstrating what sort of behaviors and, uh, what's, it, what's a good word for it? What our state will be when Jesus, when we all are in a redeemed and renewed state. Jesus is a redeemed, renewed creation. And eventually, when God finishes bringing the kingdom of God, we can look forward and see that Jesus is an example of what we will be. There's way more taking place here. It's a, it's a clue. Pain, suffering, death, gone. These bodies that you have right now can and will be redeemed for those who believe in this man, Jesus. This earth is not all you have. There is more. And Jesus is the first clue. The next thing we learn is that 
The new era brings an end to death forever. One scholar calls death the last enemy. It's the last thing any of us will ever face. It's the last enemy. Jesus says, nah, I'll just conquer that too. No more death. So you will, we will all die here on this earth and we will not taste a spiritual death. For those in Jesus, you get to spend eternity on earth. By the way, heaven will come down on earth in the new creation. It will redeem, renew, and restore the world to the way it was supposed to be. And you will live dwelling in your body, redeemed, renewed, and restored. That's what's going to happen. And death will be no more. It will be gone. Now, I always look out at San Francisco, and I think, man, I go up like, to different parks and stuff, and I hike, and I look, and I go, man, what a beautiful city. And I think, man, there's so much shady stuff going on at the same time. Like, I can't see it all from here. But someone, I mean, I hear car alarms. I hear all sorts of stuff. What would this city be like without any pain, death, or suffering? What if we could just experience the beauty of the city and of the Bay Area without any of the bad stuff? That's what awaits in a new creation. This is what awaits. This is what Jesus is bringing with him. This is what's happening. And so if you thought, I decide I go to heaven and I go to some place where I'm a big, fat, chubby baby and you know, you're playing a weird instrument on a cloud in the sky, that is not the thing, okay? And if you go like, and if you think hell is like some weird cartoonish devil with red horns poking you with a pitchfork, that's pretty close, you know? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's another sermon, okay, another sermon. Last thing, if the resurrection is, did not happen, the Christian faith is fraudulent. If this didn't happen, the Christian faith is fraudulent. Now, there's plenty of ideologies and worldviews that are trying to use parts of the Christian faith to enjoy it. I hear you, I understand. If you're part of that, man, praise God. I'm thankful you're here. But from the Christian perspective and from the Bible's perspective, if the resurrection's not true, Christianity's not true. And I've read this text to you before, and I think I'm gonna read it uh, probably next week, but I wanna read it again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. Paul talking here. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now he's talking to Corinth, but he's talking to us. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. Yes, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those that have died, they've got no hope. And if Christ, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Now this is Paul speaking from a man who's been stoned, shipwrecked, beaten, flogged on behalf of, of uh of, Christ, of Jesus, he was knocked unconscious, prayed over, got up, went back into the city and kept preaching. If, if one of you knocks me unconscious, I am not coming back after that, okay? I'm gone, like there's football on. I'm going home with ice. Paul gets up and he goes back in and he starts preaching again. He understands, he's like, this is all in vain if Jesus didn't rise. So the Christian perspective is that if Jesus did not resurrect, we are telling people he did. We, worship, we, we read a book that claims he did. If he didn't, then the Christian faith can be thrown out. And I encourage you, disprove the cross, disprove the resurrection, and throw Christianity out. It should be thrown out. Last thing, and I will end, I swear. Jesus' resurrection gives us the power to make power to, or sorry, resurrection gives power to people to make kingdom decisions. 
This means that you, in your own, wherever you find yourself today, regardless where you find yourself, a sinful state, all of us, have a power to transcend our brokenness and make decisions that are of God. We can do that. We can do things beyond ourselves. There is power in the cross, not just for a heaven that exists later, but for today. We talk about it all the time. You've heard it. The same power that rises Jesus from the grave rests in humanity for those who are in Christ today. And that means you have an ounce of the Holy Spirit to overcome the things that are holding you back. Many of you heard this story this week, and I just had to bring it up. I, will hope, I hope that I do it justice. Um, but you many, many of you have heard of the, the police officer who shot the man in his house. Anyone, does anyone hear about that story? Police officer Amber Geyer, name is, she shot, shot a, a, a man in his house um, thinking it was her own apartment. She, she was a white female. Um, I think they were in Texas. Yeah. Uh, Dallas. Yeah. Yeah, Dallas. And, and he was a black man. And she shot him, in, she shot him in, cold, in cold blood in his house. And wherever we find ourselves on that, this is just an interesting thing. Amber was in the wrong home. She thought she was in the right home. She opened fire on what she said was she thought was an intruder. She kills this man. She was sentenced um, and convicted of murder in the first degree. She received 10 years in prison for murder in the first degree. Um, yeah, one could argue that the opposite might have ended in the death penalty if it was a black person shooting a white woman. That's, that's neither here nor there, okay? We can talk about that. This is not an anti-justice part of the sermon, okay? This is very much justice, but there is a brother that gives his testimony after. I give, like, they read their, their last words to, the, to the, the defendant as they go to prison, and many of the family members, rightfully so, are angry, and they're furious, and they wish horrible things on this woman, and you know what? I can't say I fully don't blame them. I think that they wanted more justice and they didn't receive it. And they wanted that and they didn't receive it. But one brother does offer something different. And many of you have heard this. Um, you know, many people are wishing this woman a, a speedy death in her cell. I, I, I get all that. Uh, the victim's brother offers a moment of hope, uh, which is really bizarre in a context like this, okay? He, and I'm going to read it to you. He, he says this to the victim. And so the woman, the woman, she's quite honest, she did something really terrible, right? She murdered somebody. She did something very terrible in a very hostile culture for this today. It's a horrible act. And um, I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom, but when the, when, the, when the sentencing is being done, it is not a pleasant place to be. People are angry. People are mad. People are sad and broken. All, all understand. But this is what the brother says to her, and maybe, maybe, maybe you've heard it. But he says this to her, as he's reading, his younger brother, um, the victim's younger brother, Botham Jean, he says, if you're truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself that I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. Now, he didn't say this pleasantly. He said it fighting back what looked to be tears. And if I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I don't think anyone can say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself and not on behalf of my family but I love you just like everyone else. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die, but I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And his best advice would be to give your life to Christ. 
I'm not going to say anything else, but I think if you give your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can I, can I give her a hug, please? And maybe if you've been following the story, you know that he, he came and gave her a hug and she sobbed into his, um, sobbed into him. And it was a beautiful moment of forgiveness. Now, I, I'm really, I, quite honestly, I'm really bummed that the way this has been received. We've looked at this message and we've politicized it. We said, the crime wasn't that big of a deal, 10 years is fine, this is, and then we go, and then certain communities will look and say, this is how we forgive. This is what needs to happen. And what the other communities will hear, like black community will hear that and go, well, but, but like, you know, like that's not fair because there's lots of injustice still taking place. I'm not gonna be a part of that. And then the, the flip side will be, this will say like, well, I get it, like forgiveness is good, but we still need to remember that like justice needs to be served. And we're looking at this thing so binary, and I'm looking at this, and it just miss, it absolutely just misses the point. Our conversations are valuable, they're necessary, they are needed, people are hurting, people, this woman committed a horrible crime, she needs to be punished in this life, temp, in the temporal world, but in the eternal world of total, utter forgiveness, even the worst among humanity gets grace. This doesn't mean that what the person did was good or right or that justice was served. What it means is, is that while temporally justice, in my opinion, was not served, that eternally it absolutely was. That there was an innocent man, just like Botham, taken to a cross, nailed to the cross, beaten, murdered, flogged. And that all who believe in him, that blood counts for the sin on our souls. Now, if you say that that blood isn't sufficient for that sin, but it's sufficient for mine, then you've missed it. That all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That we all are in this boat, and we all stand before our judge guilty. Guilty. Life in prison. But for those in Jesus, the judge comes off the stand. The judge says, you know what? Guilty. Punishment must be paid. Insufficient punishment, by the way. In eternity, apart from me, God. But I'm going to send my son Jesus to pay it. I understand the anger. I understand the frustration. But this is what authentic, blood-soaked forgiveness looks like. When you can look at someone who is in the context of an American, in, of American slavery, in the context of American discrimination, and see a black man forgive a white, white police officer who murdered her, his brother, and you can see that, all that does is make the, the act of forgiveness more pronounced. All it does is make it even bigger. It doesn't negate it, it makes it more potent. This young guy looks at this woman and says, the blood for your sin has been shed. Now, temporally, that's for the courts to decide. You should be punished. But eternally, if you accept Christ, you will be with him in paradise. And the stench of grace to some people is just unpalatable. But this is what it is. All who sin and fall short of the glory of God are welcome in the kingdom should they believe in this cross. Now, what other worldview just 
spitballing here. What other worldview offers that? Because I'm not a, a religious scholar, but if you study many other religions, you earn your way to your salvation. And by the way, if you were a part of the LDS community, if you're part of the Mormon church, you put yourself way beyond the eight ball to get into the celestial kingdom. You've got a lot of work to do to earn your way back into that highest version of heaven. You've got a long way to go if you are uh, to, to redeem yourself, to get yourself back into good God's graces. But this is Christianity. It's the radical nature of the, of the cross. And no other faith or worldview can offer this. Not even a secular worldview who says, let's just preach forgiveness can do this because everyone has a line that if you cross it, there's an unforgivable line. Only Jesus offers this. That's the power we have access to in Christianity, that we can transcend all hatred and believe in something more powerful and bigger than ourselves. Even when it disgusts us to our soul, we know that Jesus is good and right, and we are sinners, and we can be redeemed over time. Let's pray.